Luke 2, 8 through 20. I've titled this message, The Day That Changed Everything. And there was one day that many Americans, probably most in the world, certainly Americans, felt to be a day that changed everything. It was a great day. It was July 20th, 1969. Some of, some of you, I'm sure, can remember that day. The day that two American astronauts, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, landed their lunar module on the moon. Man had reached a place that had only a few years before had been long thought to be unattainable, unreachable. What man had accomplished that day was indeed received as very, very good news. The future, many thought, was ours. The opportunities are unlimited. Nothing is beyond our grasp. Well, as good as a day that was, as joyous and as much celebrating happened that day, as groundbreaking an accomplishment it was for man to land on the moon, there was a day, beloved, there was a day that was far, far, far greater. There was a day that was more groundbreaking That happened many years before 1969. It was the day, not that man landed on the moon, it was the day that God landed down and touched the earth. That was truly a day that changed everything. And contrary to 1969, had God not intervened and did what he did in today's passage, there would have been no public acclaim, there would have been no public celebration. There would have been no coverage. There would have been no recognition. The story of this event, which is the beginning of the gospel, and is the declaration that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, now enters the fray and has drawn near, has compassionately and powerfully drawn near to save his people, begins here. I divide our text this morning into four parts, verses 8 to 10, shows us the pronouncement of the good news, the pronouncement of the gospel. Verses 8 through, I'm sorry, 11 through 12 gives us the person of the good news. 13 to 14 gives us the purpose of the good news. And then I'm double dipping on 13 and 14 uh, all the way to the end of the passage. In verse 20 gives us the proper responses to the good news, the pronouncement, the person, the purpose, and the proper responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read our text, Luke 2, 8 to 20. I'm sure this is a passage that many of you are familiar with. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with an angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. Look first at the pronouncement of this very, very good news in verses 8 through 10. And we must observe how unusual this pronouncement is. Generally, a royal family would announce the, the, the arrival, the birth of the king's son, the, 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 the birth of the heir, the prince, the, the future king, with a, a sense of pizzazz, with a, with a sense of grandeur. There would undoubtedly be energy in the air. There would be a great pomp in the air. Here is the man who is next going to sit on the throne. Here is the next man who will lead, who will protect our nation. Here is the man who will be the next face, the next voice. Here is the man who is the next identity of the nation. He will perpetuate. He will ensure the nation's security, the nation's stability. That man, that young prince is now coming into the world. Undoubtedly, a time of excitement and thrill and joy and anticipation. But that's what normally happened when a prince was born. We don't see any of that happening as of yet for the prince of princes, for the prince of peace. None of that for Jesus. Instead of being announced with, with pomp and pub publicity we see him announced in poverty and privacy the birth of the lord jesus was first announced while most were asleep in their beds and those who received this news weren't royal heralds or upper class nobility they weren't even those among the the religious establishment who were they they were the low class blue collared men of society. They were shepherds. See, shepherds, shepherding was a 24 hour a day, seven day a week, 365 day a year job. Shepherds were constantly on the go. They were constantly working with filth and waste and food. Shepherds constantly needed to be with their flocks, which meant that they were constantly breaking rabbinical and ceremonial codes like not working on the sabbath or not touching unclean things not touching diseased animals not touching an animal's carcass the public image of shepherds got so bad that they were generally assumed to be uncouth uneducated unreliable irresponsible 
dishonest. They were commonly thought to be liars and cheats who would do anything, no matter how unethical, if it meant putting a little something extra in their pocket, if it meant something for them. To the extent that in this time, shepherds were actually, a shepherd's testimony was unadmissible at court. They were thought to be such scoundrels. Does this surprise us? It should. I mean, like the Roman cross used for executing the worst criminals, public opinion of of shepherds have changed after 2,000 years of of being identified with Christianity. We uh, we attribute a a sense of honor. We we attribute a sense of worth and privilege to be a shepherd. And maybe some of you have a have a nice painting or a perhaps a a sculpture, a ceramic sculpture of a shepherd that you got at a Christian bookstore. Maybe maybe you have a painting of a shepherd with a with a sentimental passage at the bottom. There, there's even a, a painting at Sam's Noodletown, the official Asian restaurant of SVBC. There's a there's a painting on the wall of a shepherd with his flock and with a, a pithy little statement, "Happiness is the sun on your back." We 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 have things like that that remind us that we look with a, with a sense of fondness to shepherding. Being a shepherd stunk, literally. You, you were with animals. You looked like, uh, the shepherds often looked like animals. They smelt like animals. They were commonly thought to be no better than animals. So these lowly shepherds, they're just out there in the fields. They're faithfully, they're humbly doing their jobs. When we see in verse 9, suddenly. An angel of the Lord, an unnamed angel of the Lord stood before them. I, I don't know. It, in some paintings I've seen, the angel is way up in a cloud. It, how close was the angel? Did the, did the angel appear in their midst? However close it was, we clearly see they were terribly frightened. The way, the way uh, it says in the, in the original language, it's intensifying, it's emphatic. They feared with a great fear. They were incredibly, incredibly scared. And this, is, this abject fear is the normal reaction that men have when they encounter heavenly beings. And if that's not enough, look who accompanies the angel. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and what else is there? The glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord God shone around them. No wonder they were terribly frightened. Just a few weeks ago, those of you who were with us, We saw Peter, James, and John being taken up to the mount, and Jesus was transfigured. This glory of the Lord emanated from Jesus' face, and we saw the three disciples who had been walking with him every day for two years, quaking and falling down on their faces in holy fear. No doubt these shepherds' hearts are quickly approaching cardiac arrest. Just like Jesus had to comfort the three we see the angel's first words this is this is the, these are the same words that they, that gabriel had to tell uh, zacharias in chapter one these are the same words that gabriel had to tell mary in one thirty in chapter one verse 30 do not be afraid 
do not be afraid. He's not a harbinger of judgment. This angel is a herald. He is a messenger of good news. He says he has news which will bring great joy. And even better for these shepherds, it will be for all the people. All men are eligible to receive this good news and to benefit from its great joy. Noble and ignoble. Men of high class. Men of no class. Men who have no class. Everybody. The wealthy, the poor, the wise, the simple. All are eligible to receive this good news. And if there was any doubt to the breadth to which this message was going out, the message begins with the least likely to expect a word from God. Shepherds. Lowly, lowly, humble shepherds. And we must pause for just a second and thank God that he is like this. How good for us that God, that God calls the lowly. I can identify with these lowly shepherds. I can identify with, with, with blue-collar, menial, hard-working jobs. Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. James writes in two, chapter 2, verse 5, God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. God certainly does call some who are mighty, some who are, who are wealthy, some who are profound, some who are skilled. But many that he calls are lowly and humble and poor. And I thank God that he is a God who is compassionate to those who are suffering. That's the announcement of the good news. Now for the content of the good news, which, which, reside, which resides in the person of the good news. Verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 begins with for. This word for, it's an explanatory word. It's telling us why. Why is this news so good? Because in it, God meets the greatest and beloved, God meets the most profound need that mankind has. And that is the need to be saved. For today, in the city of David, which verse 4 tells us is Bethlehem, it's where David was born. For today, in Bethlehem, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Beloved, there are, there are some passages where you have to read and read and read again. You may have to meditate on it deeply. You may have to bring out your tools, your exegesis tools, your study tools, to get the meaning, to get the richness of the passage. And then there are some passages that if you're not careful, you will trip over the diamonds that are sticking out of the pathway because they are so obvious. Helen Keller could see the wealth of in this text. Steve Lawson calls this verse a quarry mine of diamonds. There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is the person, that is the object that's the, that's the meat of the good news. 
a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice he doesn't, the angel doesn't give the shepherds the name of the child. He gives three titles, each of titanic importance. And looking at these names makes clear, makes obvious why this good news is so stinking good. Let's look at these three. First, he says, there is born for you a savior. A savior by divine decree. Jesus here is pronounced and declared as savior. Perhaps the most familiar concept about Jesus's work and who he is. He is savior. Jesus saves. But the sad irony is that most don't know what he saves people from. Many believe Jesus saves from unfulfillment. Many believe he saves from unhappiness or from bad relationships in in marriage or in family or the mediocrity of a lame, dull job. Others say that Jesus came to grant us freedom from bad habits, to show us a better way. Some say that Jesus came to free us from not thinking highly enough of ourselves. We need to love ourselves, some say. Others say that he came to save us from purposelessness. After all, don't you know that God has a wonderful plan for your life? Beloved, here is the crucial truth. Don't leave without getting this in your noggin. Jesus came to save sinners from the wrath of a holy God. Think about this. Jesus came to save you from God. Matthew one twenty one. Gabriel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Luke 19.10. For the Son of God has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What was lost? Man is lost. Man is wayward in sin, Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, not some of us, not most of us, not, not you know, those, those irreligious people, you know, us religious people, we're okay, but no, us all, we have all gone astray like sheep. Each of us has gone his own way. How does Jesus save sinners from sin? By stepping in and taking our place of judgment. He takes our sin upon himself. He places his righteousness on us. When God looks at him on the cross, when, rather, let me put this in the past tense, when he looked at him on the cross, he saw Aaron. He saw Aaron in all of his sinfulness. He saw the, the, the nasty, dirty things that have been in Aaron's heart and mind. And he saw the things that, were, that have been in your hearts and minds. When Jesus hung on the cross, and paid for sins, God saw you. And when he looks at us today, he sees his beloved son. Second Corinthians 5.21, he being God made him being Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. A body which 
he needed to be incarnated for, by the way. That's why we celebrate Christmas. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. The wonder of the incarnation is that the eternal, sinless Son of God came into the world and is now residing in this, we don't know if it was a manger or a trough. It's, it's, it's also the word for stall. It could have just been a, a, a big room with straw where the animals were. We don't know if he was in a, a, a little feeding trough or not. But the eternal, sinless, perfect infinitely glorious son of God is now this crying little baby wrapped in swaddling cloths in a stall. Residing in a body, inhabiting, possessing, having taken up a body given to him so that he might offer it up in his full humanity as a suitable, as an acceptable substitute for those who were unable to pay the penalty for their own sins. Unto you is born a savior. Praise God. He continues. Unto you is born a savior. Who is Christ? It's the second title we're given. Who is Christ? This is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew Messiah. Which means the anointed one. The chosen one. The one who... The one who is set aside for special duty. The one who is set aside and marked because he's unique, because he's different, because he's not common. To say that Jesus is the Christ means that he is the one that the prophets foretold would come. He is the one the prophets pointed to. As Christ, he is the anointed. He is, the, he is marked as God, God's chosen king. Coming from the lineage of David... Jesus is the one who would fulfill the Davidic covenant given in 2 Samuel 7, 12, which read where God promises King David at perhaps the highlight of Old Testament narrative. God promises David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will, co- who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. It's quite a different thing when men are trying to establish their kingdom And it rests on their strength. When God establishes a kingdom, oh, that's a good thing. I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My loving kindness, my faithfulness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. Your house, speaking to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established, shall be set in place forever. The son of David is also the son of man in Daniel 7.14, who we've looked at that in the last couple of weeks. Son of man is, is the one whom God is grant, is, gives a everlasting dominion, a kingdom that shall not pass away. Jesus, the Savior, is the anointed king. He is the Christ. And being Christ means he's also the anointed high priest who through the the one offering of himself took away the guilt of his people's sins. We saw that in this morning's scripture reading. 
in contrast to the to the Levitical priests who day after day after day, time after time after time, sacrifice after sacrifice, their hand, the, the blood from all their sacrifices utterly saturating their skin like a mechanic's hand with oil. All of that could never fully and finally put away, deal with sin with a sense of finality. It put it on, it put sins previously committed on hold like a like a divine layaway plan until the point where god would settle things on the cross he is the appointed as christ the appointed high priest who not not only took away our guilt but he lives to intercede daily for us you know for christians jesus christ sits at the right hand of the throne of god and prays for us daily He intercedes for us daily because he loves us. He's the anointed king. He's the anointed priest. He's also the anointed prophet. He is the second Moses who who God promised to Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 that God would raise up and that would have the very word of God in his mouth. And that's no wonder because he is God. He is God the Christ. He is the anointed. And lastly, he is Lord. He is Lord. At face value, this this title, Adonai, or Kyrios, rather, simply means a a sovereign one, a a chief, a chief authority, a chief ruler, a great ruler. And there have been many men throughout history, many kings, many lords many emperors who have who have had this title from from the lords and rulers and leaders of small local regions to lords of great empires but we have to remember that this is a jewish setting this is a jewish context these are these are jews to whom this word is being given and this with that in mind this speaks more of just a, a mere human leader more than just a a mere human ruler or sovereign this speaks of divine sovereignship divine leadership and that's because the jews understood god alone was lord god alone is the highest and the greatest authority in the purest sense of the word yahweh is lord and this is why the jewish scribes in the intertestamental period when they were transcribing the hebrew scriptures into greek we call it the septuagint when they were translating and writing the septuagint they didn't write yahweh the the covenant name that god gave to moses and which is listed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of time in the old testament scriptures they didn't write yahweh they wrote kyrios they wrote lord for god's name They understood that to say anyone else, to attribute anyone else as Lord other than God was blasphemous, which is one of the reasons they hated Caesar so much. Caesar kind of had a fondness for being called Lord. But here, Jesus is the Lord. And look, verse, how does verse uh, verse 11 end? Does he say, for unto you is born a, sa- a Savior who is Christ, a Lord? The Lord. That you have to say it, the. 
Even the presence of the, the presence of the definite article here implies there's no other lords like this Lord. He is the Lord. He stands in a class of his own, and that's because he's God in the flesh. And the four gospel narratives provide more than enough evidence to back that claim up. The person of the good news resides in a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Move on to the purpose of the good news. The purpose of the good news. In the Old Covenant, as I said earlier, and as we saw in the scripture reading, God's people had the priestly sacrifices to deal with sin. But as we also have been reminded, the blood of bulls and goats didn't really deal with sin, did they? Paul writes in Romans 3 that God patiently with, with long-suffering, he patiently passed over their sins until, he would, until the time came where he would deal with them, and that time came on the cross. That day came at Calvary. Whereas Paul says in Romans 3.26, where God could and he did demonstrate his righteousness in being both just and the justifier of those who have faith. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for God to be both just and the justifier of sinners? Doesn't that kind of seem like an oxymoron? Doesn't that kind of seem like a, a contradiction? Well, this means that had God merely pardoned sin without punishing sin, his justice is not seen. Had God merely punished sin to serve justice, to, so that justice is established, that justice is maintained, but he didn't pardon, well, where is his mercy? Where is his kindness? Where is his loving faithfulness? But in propitiating the sins of many in Jesus, God gets to show off both. God gets to show off both his justice for in Christ sins are paid for and his mercy for those who come to Christ in repentant faith. Their sins are pardoned. Their ledger is wiped clean. To see his justice and his power and his love and his mercy and his kindness and his wisdom and his sovereignty and to see all of his attributes known God sent forth his son. Do you, do you get that we understand God by looking at Jesus? John 1.18 says that no one has seen God at any time, but only the, the, the only begotten, only the one of a kind God who is Christ, he has made him known. That's, that's the word to explain to make understandable. Christ makes God understandable. This is why he would say later in the same gospel, he would say to Philip, if you've seen me, remember Philip says, show us the Father. That's all we really want. Show us the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says the sun is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact representation. He is a mirror image of his being. God is indeed glorified in the coming 
of Jesus and peace is given to those who receive him. That's why we see in verse 13, the angel who, who kicked this off, the, the lone angel who appeared to the shepherds, he's, he's no longer alone. Who joins him? We see suddenly there was a, with the, with the angel, there's a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. The host, the, the, this word is a, is a military term. It, it, it sounds like an army. It's, it sounds like when you whack a beehive and a host of bees come out. Too many, you know, it, when you have a swarm of bees coming at you, do you, do you, do you go, okay, there's one, two, three, four. Oh, I lost count. Can you, can you go buzz back and then buzz this way so I can count it? No, you, you run. You, it, you can't count. Too much to count. Insurmountable numbers. Incalculable incalculable numbers. This army of angels, a sight. If one angel is enough to terrify these men, think about what a, an innumerable host. We, we, again, we're not told how close they were. Were they a mile up in the sky? Were they 10 meters away? We don't know. But if one angel was enough to make these men shiver in their sandals, what did a host do? Well, the good news is that these angels don't come declaring terms of war. They come declaring God's terms of peace. Glory to God in the highest. I I don't know how I could read that to imitate what a host of angelic hordes praising these words would sound like. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. The purpose of the gospel is to glorify God through the crosswork of Jesus Christ, which offers peace, which proclaims peace to sinful people like me and like you. In Christ, God's justice for sin is upheld. In Christ, his mercy and his kindness to sinners is seen. And beloved, we must remember in light of the season, in light of 48 hours from now, the occasion which we celebrate, the celebration of Christmas, the celebration of the incarnation of eternal God becoming, of taking upon our nature upon himself. The cro- his cross work was only possible because of this miraculous, wondrous thing. Now we consider the proper responses to this good news. How, how ought we respond to what has been proclaimed? Well, we can start by looking at how these shepherds and how the individuals in the narrative responded to that good news. Now, there's five responses, but I'm stretching it over six points. You may go, Aaron, that you can't count. You're right, but I, think, I promise it'll make sense. First response and as i said at the very beginning i'm double dipping on verses 13 to 14 they these verses not only show us the purpose of the gospel which is to glorify god and to offer and promise peace to men but it also shows the response the first response of the angels as they burst forth in praise angelic praise it was angels 
not the men who first praised God. Angels who had never sinned, angels who needed no savior, angels who needed no redemption, angels who had not fallen, angels who didn't need to be forgiven. They didn't need any cross work of Jesus for them. They had not felt the joy of of shame being lifted off. They, They didn't know what it was like to feel the burden of a guilty conscience being released. Isn't that good? When that happens, when a, when a debt is paid, when a, when a trespass or an offense has been forgiven and you've been reconciled to someone, isn't that a good feeling? Doesn't that actually draw you closer to that person once you've been reconciled? These angels hadn't gone through that. And yet they're more than willing. They, they are eager. They are primed. They are ready to impulsively just respond in praise and worship to what God has done in sending Jesus Christ. These angels who do not cease to worship him day after day after day find all the more reason, all the more impulse, all the more occasion to stop and to praise him. How much more ought we who, who, we who do know what it is to be guilty. We who do know what it's like to have shame and guilt. And then to be acquitted of that guilt and condemnation and shame through Christ Jesus. How much more should we be ready and primed and willing and eager to just stop and praise God? That's the first response and from the angels. And if you're wondering how I have six responses and five points, this response of praise is going to rebound at the very end. So maybe I just gave away the mystery. I don't know. Second response, we're going to leave the, leave the angelic. We're now going to look at what men do. And that is a prompt response, a prompt obedience. Verses 15 to 16, the prompt obedience of the shepherds who immediately impulsively drop what they're doing and leave their flock and they immediately seek out Jesus. No sooner have the angels departed, their chorus has rescinded and now now it is a silent night again. It's not silent in the hearts and minds of these shepherds, but you could hear the, the crickets again. They, no sooner had the angels gone away from them back into heaven, the shepherds begin, they begin saying, they begin discussing with one, with one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem. We got to go. We've got to go. We've got to see this thing for ourselves. Let's go straight there. No beelines. Er, we're, no, we're making a beeline. No detours, no delays, no hesitation. They act at once. And they go. A a certain Bishop Hooper says, comments on this when he says, they did not reason nor debate with themselves who should keep the wolf wolf from the sheep in the meantime, but they did as they commanded and committed their sheep to him whose pleasure they obeyed. Do you realize that for leaving their flock out in the middle of the fields, if, 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 if the owner of the flock were to come and see that the shepherds had abandoned the flock, You know what would happen to the shepherds? You fired. You out of a job. 
They didn't stop to think about who's going to take care of the sheep. They just entrusted their work to God and went straight to Bethlehem. I must ask you and ask myself, what is stopping us from dropping what we have on our plate and responding to God with worship and praise and honor? What is stopping you from a prompt and swift response to Jesus Christ? Oh, I've got to get my life in order. Jesus is not, Jesus wouldn't be impressed with me unless I got some, you know, unless I got a little more religious. I need to pray a little more. I need to read my Bible a little more. And then maybe Jesus would take notice of me. No, you go straight to him right now. And there were many in Christ's public ministry. If you've read the Gospels, there are many who made similar excuses. I've just, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. I want to learn from you. But I just got married. Or I have an inheritance coming. Just let me get my affairs in order. Delayed obedience is tantamount to disobedience. We see that they that these shepherds went to Bethlehem in haste, and guess what? They found everything exactly as the angel had told them. Their prompt obedience brought them a rich reward. Think about it. These lowly shepherds, those ostracized, those looked down upon, those of those thought to be near worthless. Their eyes, besides Joseph and Mary, were the first to see the baby Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's Messiah. So the praise of the angels, the prompt obedience of the shepherds, and then we see in verse 17 that they passed on the news. What was, what was proclaimed to them, they proclaimed, they themselves proclaimed to others verse 17 when they had seen this they kept it to themselves because they didn't want to offend anybody they wanted to let other people find god no 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 they made known the statement which had been told them about this child people arrogantly say things like well that's you know when you're trying to share scripture with them they say well that's just your opinion That's just the way you interpret it. No, this is what God says. Things that are offensive, things like the wages of sin is death, or there's no other name given to men under heaven by which men can be saved, or I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I've heard evangelism described by someone as simply being one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. This this isn't me coming up with what I think you need to hear. Peter says that no scripture is is given by any private interpretation, but that the the Spirit of God moved men. No prophecy is, is of any one's own personal and private interpretation. That means that means that the prophets and the apostles, as they're going around, they don't they don't look at things and go, you know what? I think I could I think I could spin this to get my agenda across. I think this is how I want to come across. No. They wrote what God wanted them to write. This isn't Jesus isn't uh, uh, my creation. Jesus isn't 
my God as if he came from my mind or my imagination. Jesus is God as he has revealed himself. So when we share the gospel, when we evangelize, when we exhort others to trust in the words of scripture, we're not giving them our religion. We're simply giving them what has been revealed to us. We are passing it on. Fourth response is perplexity. See this in verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. There were people who were perplexed. These were the people whom the shepherds told. Well, who did they tell? Who didn't they tell? I mean, they must have told everybody. They they must have been knocking on doors. They just saw the most amazing thing that they had ever and possibly will ever see in their life. Jesus didn't grow up doing miracles. He started doing miracles at around 30. We don't know if these shepherds were still alive by the time he started his public ministry. This could have been the greatest thing they would ever see for the rest of their lives. Do you think they would have kept it to themselves? There should be a sense of perplexity and astonishment. And we're told whoever, those who they did tell were perplexed. They wondered. They marveled. They were, it, it, it was too much for them to get their minds around. And there should be this sense of perplexity and astonishment and wonder at some of the things God reveals about what he's done and who he is in the scripture. I mean, think about it. Eternal God becoming man. You don't, you don't see that in the natural order. You don't see the one who is greater stooping down in humility to serve the needs of the weaker. I mean, isn't that the exact opposite of uh, Darwin's theory of survival of the fittest? The, the thing that is weaker, the thing that is, that is smaller, the thing that is slower, the thing that is frailer should die off so that the stronger can live, so the stronger can thrive. God goes the other way and being the greater, being the stronger, being the mightier stoops down to serve the weaker. And this is why Precisely why Paul says in the, that the gospel is foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. There's enough in the gospel. There's enough in God's word to offend anybody. It's an equal opportunity offender. Our God is an infinite God, and we shouldn't be surprised that there are some things about who he is, and there are some things about what he has done and what he will do, and that there are truths about him that take more than a second to contemplate. We shouldn't be surprised that there are some things about God that we will spend all eternity still trying to figure out. He is an infinite God. Augustine wrote uh, about a, uh, he's walking along the beach one boy. This is a, a fourth century, fifth century, fourth century, a church father, early church father who's walking along the beach. And he sees a, he sees a boy digging a hole. And he's asking that he asks the boy what he what, what are you doing? I'm digging a hole so I can fill it with the ocean. And isn't that exactly what we're what we try to do when we when we try to when we try to put everything we know about God in a box and we try to and if, if we if there's something we can't figure it out, if we can't grasp it, we dismiss it. Can't be true because I don't understand it. 
there are some things about God, about who he is and what he's done that are bigger than us. So there, there should be a sense of perplexity, of astonishment and, and, and marveling and amazement. There should be things that occasionally, even post-salvation, there should be things that just stop us in our tracks and cause us to impulsively respond in worship. That, that Don Whitney, the guy that, that Daniel uh, was talking about this morning, defines worship as attributing worth to God in light of, of his attributes, in light of who he is, in, li- in light of what he's done. When you think about those things and that leads you to, in your mind and in your attitude, ascribe him worth, honor, praise, that is worship. We see the fifth response as prizing and pondering. And this is, this is the next logical step from being perplexed. Everybody can be perplexed at some of the things found in the word of God. But believers prize and ponder these things. They don't, they don't just dismiss them because they're too difficult they, they deposit them deep inside. That, that, that's the, this word for treasured these things. Verse, uh, 18, verse 19, Mary treasured all these things. This is the same word used when Herod kept John the Baptist safe in prison. He, he put him away. He, he Deposited in safe in, into a safe place. Mary deposited these words deep into her heart and her mind. She didn't just dismiss them. She mulled them over. She meditated on them. She treasured them up. Her mind became a safe deposit box for the things that she's heard about her son. Her mind became a treasure chest. And she would revisit these, these thoughts, these revelations, these announcements about what her precious baby will grow up to do. Are our thoughts like this? Are our meditation habits anything reflective of this? Do we, do we hear things about God in the scripture or in the sermon or in our daily devotionals? Do we prize them away? Do we treasure them away? Do we lock them up in the deep down in our heart and, and then visit them from time to time and mull them over, meditate on them, think about them? Or do we do the equivalent of getting a, a cheapy, low, off-brand sticky note and scribble something on it, stick it on there and go, well, as long as it lasts. Those of, anyone work in a, in a school or an office? I'm not talking about Scotch, um, Scotch brand sticky notes. I mean off-brand. I mean dollar store quality sticky notes. Beloved, there, I fear that some of us may be guilty of just thinking too casually, too flippantly about who God is and what he's done. Ponder his word. Treasure his word. Deposit his word deep into your mind. Think about God more than just 50 minutes on Sunday morning. 
Paul says in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above where Christ is. He writes elsewhere in Philippians 4, 8, if, if anything is honorable, if anything is right or pure or lovely or good or repute or excellent or worthy of praise, he says, dwell on these things. Live on those thoughts. Build your house on those thoughts. I can't think of anything more excellent or good or praiseworthy or of good repute than what Jesus Christ has done for a sinner like me. Prize and ponder these things. And then the sixth response, which is really the fifth response revisited, is praise. But the first time it was praise by angels. Angels who see God as he is every day. And don't stop praising. These are, this is now praise from the shepherds. Verse 20 tells us that they went back. Where's back? They went back home. They went back to work. They went back into their lives. Praising God. What are you, where are you going back to? Some of you are going back to work. Some of you are going back home. Maybe some of you are going back to another town. Maybe some of you are going back to a hard marriage. Maybe some of you are going back to difficulty and frustration you have with your kids. Maybe some of you are going back to a hard job. Maybe some of you are going back to a life of mundaneity or mediocrity. Maybe some of you are going back to a life that's honestly quite swell. What are you going to do in light of the good things God has revealed to you? They went back praising God, having been told these things and having seen exactly what had been told them. They go back. They respond in kind with the angelic host. They go back home. They go back to work. They go back to their normal lives, praising God, glorifying God for his merciful provision of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What a good God we have, amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful announcement that good news has come, and it is good news indeed. I pray that anybody here who came in through these doors with a small view of Jesus might leave with a bigger view. I pray that you would make my view of Jesus bigger than it was. Help us to see your glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Glorify yourself through the explanation of Jesus Christ. Let us all be mindful of the privileges that we have in him, of the privileges that we have, of the blessings we have in him that have been made possible because he considered his glory, his deity, his rights and privileges as eternal God, not as something that he needed to clutch onto or grasp. He didn't consider it a robbery. But in humility, 
in lowliness of mind, he set these things apart, aside. He, he emptied himself. He took upon himself the God who deserves all praise and all honor and all worship and who deserves to be served and obeyed for all eternity. He came not to serve, not, not to be served, but to serve. He came as a man. Being, for, being found as a man, he was obedient to die on a cross in place of sinners. Magnify Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, our sweet Savior. Magnify him, make him greater, make him bigger, make him more beautiful and glorious in our minds today than they were than it was yesterday. We thank you for him. We thank you for your provision of him. We thank you for the sweet savior he is. Amen.